0: Without my father, I really had no higher power. I had no sense of who I was. And I really felt completely abandoned at that point. And so I was just running on fear ever since that day.
1: Welcome to episode 364 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Erin, Tanya, Gwen, Adela, Holly, and Jason. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you. Aaron, Tanya, Gwen, Adela, Holly, and Jason, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand this, perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery.
0: Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show we represent ourselves rather than any twelve-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take with what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life.
1: And my name is Spencer. I am your host today. And joining me today is Shannon. Welcome, Shannon, to the Recovery Show. Thanks, Spencer. Before we start, I need to say that there is mention in this episode of Suicidal Thoughts and Actions. You brought us a couple of readings to start.
0: I did. I'm a dual program member. I work both Al-Anon and ACA programs, and I thought I would do a couple different readings, one from the literature for each of those programs. And the topic is fear of abandonment. So the first reading is from the Big Red Book of Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. It's actually from a chapter that's titled, My Parents Didn't Drink, But I Can Relate. When they talk about family types, they're referring to all the different family types, which is one of the really great things about ACA is that it's a program of inclusiveness. So I just wanted to read a a quick paragraph or two from there. We are more alike than we are different. Our experience shows that the codependent rupture, which creates an outward focus to gain love or affirmation, is created by a dysfunctional childhood. It is the same rupture among adult children of all family types. This sole rupture is the abandonment by our parents or caregivers. The abandonment sets us up for a life of looking outward for love and safety that never comes. The codependence of the adult child from the alcoholic or non-alcoholic home is the same and leads to the same loss of self. The codependence or abandonment by the parents is the seed of ACA empathy. The seed bears the fruit of identification and bonds together adult children and of all family types. This identification creates a viable fellowship of such diverse people. As adult children from various families, we focus on ourselves for the surest results. We gradually free ourselves from codependent or addictive relationships. We also address our addictiveness. With addictiveness, we tend to use almost everything in our path to cauterize our continual bleeding of the soul. Food, sex, drugs, work, spending, religion, and people are fair game for a codependent ACA, trying to feel safe or loved. Some of us describe feeling like a black hole pulling everything in our path into us, yet letting nothing escape, not even light. Our addictive relationships represent our impulse to heal our family of origin through our adult relationships. Because we were not consistently nurtured, and not made to feel safe as children. ACAs from all families spend their lives chasing love and affirmation in other people who often cannot give it. The ACA focus on oneself is a proven remedy to this spiritual dilemma. The foundation of ACA identification comes from the laundry list or the problem, which describes a personality who fears people, has difficulty expressing feelings, and who can tolerate a high level of abuse or neglect without realizing the effects of such behavior. The adult child personality, the false self, lives in fear of being shamed and abandoned. Yet the person chooses relationships which do both. These common behaviors are the identifying traits which create ACA identification. This identification makes it possible for the adult children from different homes to come together and recover together without fragmenting into different groups. The language of ACA, grounded in our traits and literature, creates the critical mass that changes our thinking and behavior. With the support of the ACA fellowship, the true self emerges.
1: Okay. Some of that is new to me because I'm not familiar very much with ACA. But sure. I hear abandonment in there uh, a few times and separation. So I can see how we're connecting. And your second yeah. reading comes from the Allen program?
0: It does. The second reading comes from Hope for Today on September 2nd. When I did my fourth step, I was amazed to discover that my stealing a 10-cent comb at age seven was fairly inconsequential. I had carried guilt for this minor infraction for many years. I identified with the concept of an overdeveloped sense of responsibility, but I had no idea it was a shortcoming. I considered my omnipotent accountability a sterling asset. The results of my inventory suggested I consider otherwise. As I sought this defect's true nature, I found an underlying pattern of perfectionism. I wondered why I felt the need to be perfect all the time, to the point that no one had to punish me for doing something wrong. I punished myself before they could get to it. It surprised me to discover that my perfectionism covered a deep fear of abandonment. When I had done something incorrectly as a child, my alcoholic father wouldn't speak to me for days. I can still remember feeling tense, sad, and alone until he resumed communicating with me. Then everything would be okay. I felt as if I were being abandoned over and over. I didn't know my father's alcoholic thinking and behavior had nothing to do with me. Fear of abandonment is probably universal, but fear of abandonment is not abandonment itself. Only when I hold on to my childhood perception of the past, do I think I can control the possibility of being abandoned. Working the program and trusting my higher power gives me a fresh view of myself and of my past, thus freeing me from its grip. The thought for the day, it's natural for a child to want to control. As an adult in recovery, however, I have healthier options. With a relationship with a God of my understanding, I no longer fear abandonment. From survival to recovery, page eighty-three.
1: Okay, you sent me a voice mail, effectively about wanting to talk on this topic. So, what brought that up for you?
0: I did. It's again being a dual program member. It's something that's come up as I work the steps in in both programs. It's really a fear that started really early on in life, and that's why. I identified with that first reading about it being a soul rupture. Never really heard it put that way.
1: It's an interesting term.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it, I really felt that when I first read it. And the fact that creates the codependency also really drew me into that piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wondered if others might benefit from hearing a little bit more on this topic. Those have struggled in the same way. So wanted to share.
1: I appreciate you reaching out. As you said, when we were talking before we started recording, starting to break some isolation.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that's one of the tricks of of an ACA is we like to isolate. This is my way of reaching out and getting past that a little bit.
1: Cool. Why don't you start by sharing some of your story? Okay.
0: I was raised like many Al-Anons in a household with an alcoholic parent that also included a non-alcoholic, non-drinking parent who in many ways was More dysfunctional than the alcoholic. My mother, she suffered from some mental illness and severe depression and anxiety and things. Really, my two older sisters and my father are the ones who did the parenting. In ACA, one of the things that we find is important in the program is to really look at the family of origin. And we actually go through and and do an exercise where we diagram our, our family. So, in doing that, it really helped me to have a little bit more empathy both for my alcoholic father and for my dysfunctional mother. Both of them were raised in very dysfunctional households. My mother was about 9 or 10 years old when she woke up one evening to see her father wrestling a butcher knife out of her mother's hands because her mom had some kind of mental illness, breakdown, postpartum depression, which they didn't really know about back in the 50s and was, was coming in to end her life. Mm -hmm. Back in those days, they called the paddy wagon, and the paddy wagon came and took my grandmother away, and and my mother never saw her again. My father, right around the same age, had the same departure of a parent or abandonment of a parent, but his father, who actually died of liver failure due to alcoholism. So both of them had very dysfunctional childhoods themselves, and again, I see a program which try to look at it as the generational dysfunction being handed down. From one generation to the next, and doing what we can do to try to not pass it down any further. My mother's response to her childhood was really to hold it all inside and and pretend like everything was okay. And I think she was able to do that for quite some time. It really wasn't until my grandfather, her father passed away when I was about seven or eight years old, that I think he was her last link to her sanity. And from that point on, she really just faded away. Her health declined. She emotionally abandoned us, her family. So she stopped being a parent to me and my sisters, stopped being a wife to my father, etc. My father's response as an alcoholic was not surprising. (laughs) It was to drink more.
1: At which point you maybe felt you had lost both parents.
0: Yeah, in a way. Yeah. So that's, I think, where the fear of abandonment for me originated. For a long time, I always thought it was my father. But it's funny what you find out when you do your steps and walk through things and have that outside perspective. So, yeah, my two sisters, one is 11 and one is 15 years older than me. So by the time my mom had this breakdown, if you will, they were already out of the house. So I was the only one left at home and with my father's drinking, progressing. And my mother's mental health declining. Like a lot of people who grew up with alcoholic parents, I spent a lot of time trying to block out the fights and the yelling and the screaming and, and those sorts of things. And, and that was a really scary period of time for me. My father and I were pretty close. And my mother and I were not, but my father being an alcoholic, I don't know. In, in my experience, I found alcoholics to be somewhat dramatic. <laughs> The alcoholics I've known, I should say. So they would fight and he would say something dramatic like, I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. And he would slam the door and then he would get in his truck and he would zoom down our long gravel driveway with the dust flying up behind him. And it was all very dramatic. But that was the point, I think, for me, where I just, I couldn't tolerate it any longer you know whenever i heard him say he was leaving and never coming back i would run out after him i remember being a little girl standing in the driveway and he would always stop at the end of our driveway and i could see him see me in his rearview mirror and we would look at each other and he would always come back And he would always come back and he'd always tell my mother, you know, I only came back because of Shannon. So again, it was almost this constant cycle of being abandoned, come back, and being abandoned, and then come back. So that's really where it all originated for me.
1: Wow, I hear that. I only came back because of Shannon. And I guess I feel like if that was directed at me, I would feel a lot of... Pressure, a lot of responsibility somehow.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Thinking about it, when am I not going to be enough for him to come back? Is that something you recognize?
0: Yeah, I definitely recognize that. This, the funny thing is, when you're going through this, you don't see these things, but in retrospect, it wasn't until I went through the steps with my sponsor that my sponsor said, You realize what a messed up thing that was for him to say. I know how much pressure that put on you as a child. And I had never heard anybody or I'd never thought about it that way. Well,
1: as a child, you wouldn't. Mm -hmm. I don't think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. From that point on, really, two things happen. So one, to your point, there was a lot of pressure, I felt anyways, on me to be perfect and to take on this identity of being the reason why he would stay, if that makes sense. Mm
1: -hmm. Makes perfect sense.
0: So, in, in a lot of ways, and again, I didn't realize this until I got into working steps, but a lot of ways my father became my higher power. And I really lived my life trying to make him proud of me and doing things that I knew he liked to do and seeking that affirmation and safety from outside of myself, like we, we talked about in the reading. Yeah. So, the other thing that happened, and again, goes back to what was mentioned in readings was. I basically went from one bad relationship to the next. Again, didn't realize this until I I worked steps with my sponsor and really started to see the patterns and how I was consistently in relationships with people who were just incapable of providing emotional support and being loving and, and responsible for themselves. Some of them were alcoholics, some of them weren't, but I definitely identified a trend of people who were most likely to abandon me w- without realizing it at the time.
1: Yeah, like i said, like to think if you realized that was happening, that you would then do <laughs> something <it>. different.
0: <laughs> right, right. But I didn't. And then the perfectionism really ramped up. I just wouldn't do anything if I wasn't perfect at it. I became a workaholic and definitely had an overdeveloped uh, sense of responsibility for others. I remember I would read CPR manuals and I would study CPR manuals from cover to cover. And one time my parents fought and my dad threw something. He was never physically violent. He didn't believe in raising a hand to women in particular, but he would throw things. And I remember he threw uh, a pot or something and it hit our ceiling fan that had a light on it. And it broke off in large shards and it actually fell down on my mom. And sliced part of her thumb off. I just immediately sprang into action and packed her thumb and ice. So here I am, like this 11, 12 year old kid. Oh, geez. On the floor, like making an ice pack, trying to stop the bleeding for my mom. And we got to the hospital and the doctor was like, wow, like your daughter's really surprising. And, you know, it's such a young age to know exactly what to do, but. Again, that was just how I was. I, I really felt like I was responsible for them. That codependency was something I clearly learned at a very young age.
1: But I think that also shows a little bit of the positive side of the perfectionism. One of the things that I think our literature, at least Alan literature, I haven't read much of the ACA literature, you know, it says is many of our character defects also have components that are assets. And mm-hmm. they're just... Turned up too far, or something, often.
0: It, exactly. Yeah. And in, in, in ACA, we consider the same. We have traits and overdeveloped sense of responsibility is one of them. They're basically survival skills. Yeah. Now it's time to retire them because they're no longer serving us. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it manifested in different ways as well that codependency developed, uh, eating disorders, just really didn't like myself, didn't really have an identity. I, I developed. Depression, panic attacks, and the panic attacks really made it impossible for me to feel my feelings and really made me terrified of feeling. So that's something mm. that I've had to work on in recovery as well.
1: well. I'm reading ahead here, and I know we're coming up to like a breaking point, and I wonder when that yeah. happened in your life. So this
0: was probably in my 20s, or early 30s, but mostly in my 20s, I'd say.
1: And were you... Seeking therapy, or obviously you hadn't found recovery yet.
0: No, I had gone to therapists. I hadn't found recovery, didn't even know Al Anon existed at that time. But yeah, I had done some therapy. I remember one therapist told me that my family was toxic and I should not speak to them anymore. I remember thinking at the time, that's really not helpful. I can't do that. But I can understand now the concept of detachment, I think, is right. what was trying to be conveyed with that.
1: Just not in a very helpful way.
0: Right. So that was pretty much my life until 2010. Up to that year, if anyone had ever asked me what's the worst thing that could ever happen to you, I'd say my father dying. My father was a very strong man, both physically and with his personality. He was very charismatic and just larger than life. Personality, so I, I couldn't really even think of being in a world without him and then but a factor in him being my higher power as well and not really understanding that at the time. it was unthinkable and when he was diagnosed with uh, stage four lung cancer, his birthday was over Labor day every year, so I always went home back to Michigan for that and I went home for his birthday and ended up going to his funeral because he- he died just eight weeks after being diagnosed with cancer.
1: Wow. Yeah. It doesn't give you time to even start to get used to the idea, does it?
0: No, it definitely doesn't. I'm grateful for his day that he didn't have to suffer. Sure. But it was definitely, definitely a life-changing event for me. And that's where things started to really change. It also made me regress, I think, a little bit to, to childhood. And, and I remember... The day that he passed, my sisters and I getting to the hospital roughly around the same time and running into the room and the nurses, and these are oncology nurses, so uh-huh. they see a lot of death. And they had tears in their eyes and they were saying that my father had a tumor on his trachea that was pushing it. And the doctors had promised us he'd be in a coma until he passed so that he wouldn't feel like he was choking to death. But unfortunately, that didn't end up being the case. He was wide uh-huh. awake. and gasping for breath, and the nurses said that in between each breath, the only words he could say was, my girls, Mm. my girls, my girls, my girls. He just wanted to say goodbye to us one last time. I remember sitting there. I remember saying our goodbyes. But for me in that moment, I was that little girl in the driveway again. And he was, yeah, he was about ready to pull out the driveway and never come back. Yeah, yeah. And that was very hard. I I think back on my life, and I've done some very difficult things, but um, telling that man to go that day when all I really wanted was to beg him to stay. (laughs) That was definitely one of the hardest things I've, I've ever done. So without my father, I really had no higher power. I had no sense of who I was. And I really felt completely abandoned at that point. And so I was just running on fear ever since that day just really didn't feel safe in this world without him. I guess always worst the scenario for a lot of codependent people who see their loved one uh, pass away from the disease of alcoholism as well, I'm sure. I always felt when he passed, part of my soul went with his. What I realize now is that my inner child went into hiding and just was terrified. So I just kept running and running and by running, going into these other vices, like being a workaholic or having perfectionism, eating disorders. And then at one point, using prescription medications to extreme levels, because I was just constantly having panic attacks and just to try to make it through the day. I remember my doctor telling me at one point, Shannon, there's nothing else we can give you. (laughs) You have to get a hold of of this grief or you're just going to get sicker and I'm going to have to put you in the hospital. At some point, I, I realized that I was essentially doing the same thing that my mother did when her father passed. And, and that was to choose grief and and depression and all the things I no longer had over my family. My daughter was two years old at the time when my father passed away. One day I had I'd put her down for a nap and waited till she, I thought she was asleep and went in my bedroom on the side of the house and swallowed a couple bottles of Xanax. It was that dark. It really felt like Alice in Wonderland falling down that rabbit hole. The light at the top just gets smaller and smaller and you just can't see your way out when you're down that deep. But about 30 seconds after I did that, my bedroom door burst open and my daughter came bouncing into the room with this big smile on her face and thought she was, you know, surprising me. So I immediately went and threw up the pill. And and I just remember sitting on the bathroom floor, hugging her crying into her hair and thinking, I got to change this. Something has to change here. And and that's when I really decided to try to put my grief away, at least temporarily. I didn't know it at the time, but I actually started making a gratitude list and chose to focus on the thing that I still had to be grateful for versus all the things that I had lost, which is obviously program stuff there that I didn't know was program stuff at the time. That event, losing my father, really also did another thing for me. I didn't have a higher power anymore and I couldn't conceive of how he could be gone. I had a really hard time With acceptance. So I studied uh, a lot of different religions. I I read all these books about death and grace and and did all these things and and started to realize that I needed to find a God of my understanding. I needed to have a a relationship with God in some way. So I I chose a path that was very different from my husband's at the time who, who was an atheist and really started to separate more and more from him. And, and the thing that happens with a lot of ACAs, we have, I think it said it in the reading, we have a really high threshold for abuse and we don't even realize it. In corporate America, corporate America tends to love people like me because <laughs> we're, we're the yes men. We can take it. We can take the stress. We can take the yelling and screaming and inappropriate behavior that sometimes happens in the boardroom. I remember being Recommended for jobs because people would say, "Oh, Shannon can handle the stress. Anybody can handle a stressful, hostile environment. It's her." And yeah, I, I grew up in one, you know, so it's it yeah, wasn't a coincidence. So I started to really notice how abusive the relationship was that I was in and how toxic it was. I ended up divorcing my husband, and it was not only for myself but for my children because it just was a very hostile environment. And I remember at the time telling my sisters and my friends, oh, I'm not going to get another relationship. I'll never love anyone again. No one will ever love me. All these things that we tell ourselves. Two weeks later, I met my second husband, who, of course, was an alcoholic. At the time, he was actually working both AA and al It was very attractive to me. The, the program was when he first described it to me. It just Really, there was something inside of me, I think, that was drawing me to it. He also eventually introduced me to ACA. I remember everybody kind of talks about their first Al-Anon meeting or ACA meeting and being scared to go in. And and that was me. I remember sitting in the parking lot, dreading going in and, oh, I don't want to go in there. Um, And I sure don't want to speak in front of people about my problems. But I did. And eventually got a sponsor in 2017 and then began working the steps in both programs.
1: There's that overachiever again, huh?
0: Yeah, exactly. So just once again, if I go at all, I go big. I throw myself into it. But there was something there. And I think that was my higher power. I know that was my higher power, actually. That was pulling me in the right direction. My husband and I, we ended up getting married in 2018. I am very grateful that I had a good three years or so of Al-Anon in in NACA under my belt before he relapsed in 2019. COVID really didn't help matters as for a lot of people being in close quarters like we were for so long. It just really amplified his disease. And then my mother ended up having some heart issues and went into hospice. Ended up having a stroke, and she passed away in in May. I had gone to see her with my husband and my kids in March, and because of COVID, they weren't gonna let me see her. Right, but because you weren't allowed to go in then, for fear that you'd wipe the whole place out with COVID if you had it. So I remember talking to the lady at the front desk and saying, I have my mask on, I'm standing the office, I came all the way from Texas. Can I please? And, and they said, Well, we'll call the owner of the of the facility. And so they, they called her in. She was someone I went to high school with. So I feel like it was my higher power <laughs> knowing mood I needed to see her. So she was like, Yeah, Shannon, that's that's fine. I'll get you up there and you can visit with your mom. So very grateful that I, I actually got to spend even a couple hours with her and got to say goodbye. I definitely think that was a God thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But the story's not over, is it? <laughs>
0: not really. That was, for so many people in in 2020, COVID, it, it delayed everything. And we weren't able to have a funeral for her. And it almost seemed surreal. Like she had passed and I... Knew she had passed, but couldn't really process the grief because we couldn't even see her. And then for me, my mother was so depressed for so many years and always said that she wanted to die. I just want to die. I don't want to be here anymore over and over again. And how many times does a kid have to hear that before they feel like, I must not be enough, right? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Because I'm here. So at some level felt like she finally got her wish. and abandoned me. And then my father w- was gone as well. And my husband and I were doing the the dance of alcoholism and fighting and breaking up and getting back together and fighting breaking up. And then on top of it, you had COVID. So it was really a very lonely period for me to, to go through. And again, I feel like my higher power was just forcing me in a way to face my fear of abandonment. I mean, everybody was gone. There was no way around it. I had to face it. And really, like I said, had it not been for Al-Anon and and NACA and the support groups that I built in those programs and my sponsors, I I don't know how I would have made it through that. It was tough.
1: Yeah, I do not doubt that.
0: I had my kids. I, I, I had a good job at the time. I was able to support myself financially, but it was really my recovery, I think, that helped me get through it. And working through my inventories with my sponsors, when I did my inventories, my fear inventory was probably five times the length of any of my other inventories. had a lot of fears. Even when I listed out my character defects, almost all of them boiled down to fear. And then if I put all my fears in a pot and boiled that down. They almost all came down to a uh, fear of abandonment, which again, at that point I was facing head on. So through the process of working the steps, uh, I heard about the three eyes.
1: I have not heard of those.
0: Oh, no. So the three eyes: inventory, identity, and integrity. For me, I found the more that I worked through my inventories, the more I got to know who I was. So right. I mentioned how when my father passed, I really didn't feel like I had an identity. I, I, I had to ask myself, do I really like to garden or did I just garden because I'd like to garden? <laughs> do I really like to go fishing or did I just fish? He liked that. So for me, the inventories were a way of finding myself and in, in who I really was instead of who everyone else wanted me to be. And And that was kind of my thing. I was like a chameleon for most of my life. You tell me what color you want me to be, and I'll become that color.
2: Mm-hmm. But
0: you know who I was i I really couldn't tell you so it was a really long process. It took almost four years of really throwing myself into the steps and investing in my recovery. But I felt like I'm going to get out of this what I put into it i I just worked really hard on my steps with my sponsor and tried to focus on progress, not perfection, which was difficult for me. But eventually it helped me to build an identity. And then I found I was able to set boundaries. So for me, my initial reaction was to do this inventory and then move over to boundaries and integrity and protecting my integrity with boundaries. But there's an important step in between and that's the identity peace yeah. and i found that it, i just couldn't set boundaries didn't really know how to set them much less enforce them when i didn't know who i was
1: that that makes perfect sense to me yeah one of the boundary concepts is what's me and what's not me if i don't know who i am that's really going to be a lot harder maybe a, a, or impossible for me
0: if you don't know where you end and someone else begins yeah,
1: yeah. absolutely yeah, yeah. Well, it makes perfect sense.
0: Yeah, and, and again, it wasn't easy. It, it took a long time, and eventually, I got it. But the three eyes that was really helpful for me in, in in getting through some of these fears.
1: When you say it took a long time, I always like to think about how long did it take me to get here. How long am I expecting it to take me to move away from to reverse? those things right or to grow out of those things if it took me almost 50 years before i got to recovery do i expect everything to be better in a year or two or five
0: exactly yeah
1: i think i like to look at that balance right and yeah i certainly would like to recover faster than it took me to develop all those wonderful character traits, but...
0: Yeah, I, I had a therapist tell me once, 33 years for you to get to know your father, it's probably going to take 33 years for you to unknow him. So looking at it that way as well, it's so long to build these dysfunctional behaviors. I'm not going to let them go overnight.
1: Yeah, no, yeah.
0: That is important to remember.
1: I, I like to remember that when I feel like I'm not making progress.
0: Yes, exactly. At this point, I've, I've worked through the steps. I've also found really important part of my recovery has been sponsoring others. And in ACA in particular, there seems to be a pretty short supply of sponsors. I've tried to help out whenever I can, but I get as much from my sponsors, I think, as, or more maybe than they get from PG. And one of the things that I, I realized after I contacted you about this topic was that a lot of us that grew up with alcoholic parents, when we get to step two, it, come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, a lot of us never had sanity. So yeah. we struggle with it stuck because we're like, how are we going restored to something that, that we can't even remember having?
1: Maybe say, so, bring us to sanity.
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. For me, I ended up having to start the steps over three different times with three different sponsors because... <laughs> I never really felt, and maybe this is my perfectionism coming out now I think about it, but I never really felt like I got those steps and I felt like I needed to go back and and do them over until I really had that foundation with my higher power built. And I think the first time around my codependent behavior with my husband, when you're focused on somebody else and their actions, you can't. See yourself. I guided through the first three steps, and then when I did it the second time, I was much less codependent on him, and and I could really focus more on on this concept of a God of my understanding.
1: Yeah, I could see that for sure.
0: One of the turning points for me, I really didn't trust my husband when he was relapsing, and now that I think about it, I, it's funny to think I could, but at the time. I really beat myself up over it. Oh, I can't trust him. I can't be in a relationship with someone I can't trust. And I remember my sponsor was like, Hello, he's in this rose. addiction. Of course, you can't trust him. But she said something that really changed things for me. She said, Why does it matter? You can't trust him. He's in his active disease. So she said, We're told our whole lives that we should trust people and love God. But what if we got it wrong? What if what we really need to do is trust God and just love people? Her saying, do you love him? And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> and she's like, can you love him and put your trust in your higher power and be okay? And that's when I perspective, I think, perspective is, gosh, it's the majority of the problem we have, I think. But that's when my perspective was. Like, hey. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I feel like that's part of the power of the way we come together in our programs and listen to each other's stories, to each other's experience, strength, and hope is getting a different perspective.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: You look at things in a different way than I look at things and I look at things in a different way than you look at things and hopefully we can both learn something from each other.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's why sponsorship is so important. Being a perfectionist, I remember when I first started the program, I was just going to do the book by myself, you know, (laughs) I can do that. But yeah, I really needed that other set of eyes that wasn't emotionally invested in my life to stop me and look at things differently.
1: Yeah, I remember saying to somebody, you know, I don't necessarily need somebody who knows more than me, who has more program than me. I need somebody who's not me.
3: Exactly.
0: I relate to that. Since then, that's what I've really been focusing on in my recovery is turning things over to my higher power. I can't really say I'm one of those people that had this big, huge spiritual experience where I felt something blast into me like others do.
1: I don't think very many of us do that.
0: Yeah. For me, it was the little things. Yeah. So it was... The things that I could never fix myself, and I would try to power my way through a problem. My sponsor had suggested a God box, and so I did. I got a God box, and every time and without fail, I write my problem down that I've been struggling with. I fold it up, I put it in my God box. I say a little prayer, and it's like magic. Things end up working out. For me, I feel like I, I need that visual and turning it over. That's just, uh, Something that's been really helpful for me. Eventually, my husband and I separated for about a month or so. I basically just had to get out of his way. That's what my sponsor kept telling me. He has a higher power. You need to stop enabling him, stop supporting him, and just let him go. I came to the realization, and this was my boundary, that I didn't want to live in a household and, and didn't want my kids to live in a household that included active alcoholism. In all the violence and yelling and things that I had experienced myself as a child. So Mm -hmm. my boundary was, I don't want to live under the same roof with active disease. He decided that he wasn't done with what he was doing and and he left. That was really difficult for me to be like, to think that, oh, I'm going to set this boundary and it's all going to work out.
1: Boundaries are not ultimatums. Boundaries are not commands. No. No,
0: no. They are. He did his thing. I did my thing, and I really took that time alone to focus on my recovery and take care of myself. About a month or two later, he contacted me and asked me to help him get into a program, a detox and rehab program, and we got back together, and and things are okay now. I mean, it was messy. Things happened that I wish didn't happen, but we're both just taking. One day at a time and working our programs and trying as best we can to stay in our own lanes and all that stuff. And and that's all I can really do is try to live my life one day at a time.
1: Absolutely true. Okay. You've talked about some of your tools. You talked about the God box, for example, what other tools have been helpful to you in recovery in general? Also in something you can use when that old fear comes up because I'm sure it does
0: yeah it definitely does for me I really because I was such a perfectionist and wanted to do everything perfectly all the time meditation was almost impossible first of all my my perception of meditation I guess was wrong I always thought the way to meditate was to sit on the floor in the lotus position and not have any thoughts and push away thoughts and, and just blank my mind. And I had that whole posture and everything in my mind when I thought of that teacher. But I learned in Al-Anon that prayer is asking our higher power for help and meditation is listening. So for me, I found walking meditation would be really helpful. And so I try to do that every day. And that's how I came across the recovery show, because I take that time to listen to different meditations or listen to a podcast. And it it supplements sometimes when I can't get to meetings, it it supplements that. So learning how to meditate was learning a God of my understanding. So I I basically learned a a meditation of my understanding.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And that's been really helpful. The other thing that I learned that was a really helpful tool was learning how to feel my feeling. Because as I mentioned, for so many years, I was terrified of anger and angry people in particular and always felt like I'd go crazy Mm -hmm. if I got really angry or deeply depressed. I've learned to put a little space in between my feeling and a reaction because yeah. that was my other thing. I was a big reactor, and that always got me into trouble. So halt, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Any of those things, I should probably not react <laughs> or, or respond or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. defend myself. I remember doing a tip-step, and my sponsor pointed out that my part was believing these accusations that were being hurled at me by my alcoholic about myself, and then feeling like I had to defend or justify myself. And I realized I don't have to do that. I don't have to react. I don't have to defend myself. I can put some space in between feeling like I have to do that and actually doing it.
1: Yeah, that's a really powerful thing when we could do it. It
0: is. So sitting in my feelings was not easy for me. It still isn't nope. easy for me. But I heard someone say at a meeting once, if, if it's something important enough to say, you can wait a week to say it.
2: Mm. And
0: that really helped me. Now, when I feel those extreme feelings coming on, I think about that and and I try to not make rash decisions, call my sponsor or do something. Go for a walk or meditate, but really sit in the feelings and lean into the feelings. And that's where the meditation podcast that I had mentioned has also been really helpful as well.
1: Which we're going to talk a little bit more about that later, I think. Yep. We talked earlier about breaking out of isolation.
0: That's been helpful too, because that's a recoil mechanism for me when I'm in pain. Those are the times where I really need to reach out. And for so many years, I just recoiled into my sadness and my fear and didn't want to burden other people with my problems. That's what I told myself. So I would retract and insulate I really try now to make a conscious effort to speak at meetings, lead meetings when I can, sponsor people, just utilizing the tools of the program to put myself out there because we can't recover alone. Yeah. And I think that's been one of the biggest lessons for me far.
1: It's really hard to do it all by yourself when the only person you have to help you is you and some higher power that you're not sure yet you actually (laughs) believe is going to (laughs) help. Yeah. Oh, boy.
0: Exactly. Hey. Yeah. Another thing that we do in ACA is we do a lot of inner child work. So doing that work. Has been critical to overcoming my fear of abandonment. I don't know if you've heard the ACA Serenity Prayer.
1: Somebody actually mentioned it in an email, I think, that I read maybe in the most recent episode or the one before. Yeah. And yeah,
0: it's a little, little different than the, the regular prayer. Yeah, but yeah,
1: go ahead and give it to us again.
0: It's God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know that one is me. Yeah. That's been huge for me, as well is really just trying to accept other people and and know that what they do is it, it's not for me to pick up. I really liked the adaptation of the a c a screen yeah.
3: yeah
1: I've heard people say it in that way before I was not aware until very recently that was that's what has been adopted by a c a maybe the people who said it to so many years ago actually got it from there. I'm not sure. Could be. It absolutely could be.
0: I think another thing in ACA, we talk about the promises, which is what we hope to achieve in the program. And one of those is to learn how to play and have fun in our lives. And so that's something that I couldn't even think of when I was in deep pain, obviously, mm-hmm. had to obviously work through those feelings first. But I feel like in a lot of ways, I've walked through the fire. At this point, and I'm still here <laughs> for some reason, and I'm ready for that peace and serenity and, and joy that the program promises. So, choosing happiness, I can't choose depression, it's, it's a disease, just like alcoholism, but I can choose a perspective.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: choosing a perspective of joy and happiness and surrounding myself with things and people who are kind and loving and and bring me joy and happiness. That's my responsibility. So learning how to do that, I think has been one of the biggest tools that I've learned in the programs.
1: We got some contributions from a few other people who responded to my email saying, we're going to talk about fear of abandonment. We got two emails and two voicemails. So maybe this is a good time to, to look at those. I'm going to read this one from Kate. She writes, hello. Thanks for the opportunity to contribute to your show on abandonment. Fear of abandonment is something that came up for me in steps four and five, and it seems to be the fear that drives my decision-making when I'm not paying attention to myself or my feelings. Practicing step two and tradition seven helps to address my fear of abandonment. There are a few great readings linking tradition seven and fear of abandonment in our conference approved literature. One in Reaching for Personal Freedom on page 96 um, under Emotional Dependence. And one in Paths to Recovery on page 198, the paragraph that starts usually when we speak. So I will put those notes in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 364. Okay, back to Kate's letter. I find one of the best ways for me to address my fear of abandonment is to really focus on all of the areas in which I strive to be self-supporting financially physically spiritually mentally for me this doesn't mean trying to meet all of these needs on my own it means having a variety of ways and being in relationship with a variety of people to have my needs met before i came to the program i was fully dependent on the alcoholic in my life to meet all of my financial emotional spiritual and physical needs i made him my higher power wow of course it felt scary to think that he might abandon me al has taught me to diversify my portfolio, if you will, and to make my higher power, my higher power. There are some things that are appropriate for me to do for myself and some things that are appropriate to ask other people for help with. My higher power helps me determine which is which. Best. Kate. Thanks, Kate. and And I love connecting self-supporting here as a counteraction to that fear
0: really like the diversify my portfolio.
1: Yes. <laughs> I've, I've been thinking about that recently as preparing for retirement. I needed the first portfolio, but I also needed the first spiritual portfolio, I think. Yes. All right. Rachel send us a voicemail.
2: Hi, Spencer. My name is Rachel. I was excited to see you'll be doing a podcast on fear of abandonment. My fear of abandonment began at an early age as my father was an alcoholic and addict. However, I love my father dearly, yes. And for the worst until I was about 10 years old. So in the earlier stages of my life, we established a very special relationship. But from that time on, I experienced feelings of abandonment often. I felt abandoned every time I saw that he chose drugs and alcohol over our family, when my parents divorced, when he moved to another state for a period of time, or when another piece of him would melt away and be replaced with a shell of a human. And then, of course, eventually I felt abandoned when he died. I will say that seeing this part clearly has really helped me to have compassion, grace, and even forgiveness for myself and my past choices. As a result of this fear, though, it has really led to a significant amount of isolation and an inability to establish and maintain relationships. There are a handful of things that stand out to me that I have learned in program. First there's um, awareness. You know, the awareness around this fear has really opened my mind and heart to the willingness to change. Now I can start to identify choices that are made out of this fear and either take contrary action or, if not recognized in the moment, I can correct myself later. Previously, I was a slave to this fear, but now I see choices and I know that I have support through Al-Anon. In my relationship with my higher power, I'm learning to build trust and find security with my higher power. This helps to lessen my need to find it externally. I also know that my higher power will guide me in removing my defects of character that I have developed in reaction to this fear. Acceptance for who I am is something I'm working on diligently now as I pray for my higher power to guide me in ridding myself of perfectionism and feeling like I'm never good enough. It also helps to lessen my need for approval and safety from others, and I feel more capable of taking risks and making choices that are new and unfamiliar. My relationship with my sponsor has also been tremendously helpful. This has provided me the opportunity to be 100% honest, open, and to be seen with someone who continues to care about me and accept me as I am. This has really just been such a beautiful example of how relationships can be. I look forward to hearing this podcast and what you and others have to share as it relates to your experience, strength, and hope. Thank you, Spencer, for the opportunity to reflect on this topic.
1: Thank you, Rachel. I'll note that there were a couple of places where the audio dropped out. I'm not sure what happened there, but I think we heard what you had to say pretty clearly. And I hear a lot of echoes of Shannon's story. I don't know if you do or not.
0: Yeah, definitely can relate.
1: The tools here, support through al relationship with higher power, acceptance for who she is. And that gets to your inventory identity. identity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The three eyes. I, I got to remember those now. <laughs> it's a whole new thing. Sponsor. Lesson her need for approval and safety from others that was that was something i didn't know that was a trait that i had until i started being able to trust myself more right yeah thanks thanks rachel would you like to read the one from heather
0: sure. hi spencer this is heather c from california and i love the topic of abandonment My mother has always been afraid of being abandoned. She manifested her fears by being full of rage and criticism of everyone, not supporting her needs, and also in full victim mode, which looks similar as far as criticizing people for not supporting her, but her strategy was guilt, crying, and poor self-care in essence to need more people to step up and try to take care of her. So as family members, we constantly orbited her as our son, walking on eggshells, trying not to set her off. And we saw her strategy of alienating anyone who didn't do her right. We learned it was her way or the highway, that there is a way that people are supposed to show you they love and care about you. And anything less is unacceptable. This is extreme black and white thinking based in unrealistic expectations, which I now know is immediate setup for failure. And she always blamed the other people without taking her own actions under consideration. I see now where I have picked up those character defects in my own life. In that environment, I never learned how to have healthy relationship skills, like taking care of my own needs, being honest, and setting boundaries with myself and for myself then communicating my wants and needs with other people. In my own relationships, I recognize where I've taken on old survival skills of extreme people-pleasing, managing other people's emotions, and trying to force solutions in order to get things to work out in ways that I wanted or get people to demonstrate their love for me in very specific ways. In Al-Anon, I have learned other more healthy relationship skills. I have learned, most importantly, through Steps one, two, three that people come into my life with all types of baggage, personal experiences, and their own survival skills. We're all just human. People may or may not show me they love me in ways that look like what I want. That's okay. Today, I can accept that they have different ways, which I am powerless over. I can ask for what I want, and they may or may not give them to me but I can accept what they give me as the best they're capable of giving and then make a choice whether I am willing to live with that or not, knowing that I am well-supported and protected. I just experienced one simple example of this over the weekend. I love to dance. My husband never wants to, and it feels like he is extremely self-conscious if I am dancing by myself around him. I always ask him to dance, Then I get upset when he makes excuses not to. So for years, I have stopped dancing, which has made me resentful. I chose to give up something I love because I was afraid of him criticizing me or giving me grief so much that I would lose him or it would be traumatic for me. I also started to only choose to do activities that he was interested in so we would be together, even when I didn't want to do them. The truth is this. He has his own fears about dancing, which I am powerless over. But that doesn't affect my love of dancing. I now know I have so many choices. Keep prioritizing his enjoyment over mine and continue to build resentment. Accept him for who he is and never ask him to dance again. Accept him as he is without criticizing him for his fears and keep asking but getting out of the results of the answer. Dance whatever I want to, regardless of whether he wants to or not, or what he feels about it. This weekend, we were out with friends. I was feeling the music and got up and just danced by myself. Of course, I felt his eyes on me. And no, not because he thought it was sexy. (laughs) Haha, I could feel his insecurities bubbling up. Then I asked him to dance with me. He gave me his typical excuse about not really liking the music. I got upset inside. I sat down with it and felt my old tapes start in my mind. Then he asked me to scratch his back, and I made a quiet but snarky comment about him never doing anything for me. Yep, I saw my petulant child go tantrum. I can't always trust my first thought because that's my ego reaction of old hurts. But I can trust my second reaction, which is steeped in Al-Anon program. So I halted my distorted thinking that sounds like he never does something just because I want to, even if he doesn't want to, just to make me happy. How can I be with someone who doesn't support me? And replaced with choose joy. Then I got up and danced by myself. I really let myself enjoy it. Then a favorite song of ours came on. And so I asked him gently and lovingly to get up and dance with me. He begrudgingly did. I was extra loving with him because I am aware of his discomfort, which is not mine. I was able to support myself and honor what brings me joy without dishonoring him. Truth is also that I probably prefer dancing by myself than with someone who doesn't enjoy it. And now I can let go of the fantasy of how a partner should want to always dance with me or do it even if he doesn't want to. What I have learned about abandonment is that my fears lead me to abandon myself by putting other people's needs, fears, or joy above my own. When I can accept what I am powerless over other people and then move into faith that my higher power will never abandon me and wants me to prioritize myself and choose joy. I can make choices that support myself and build self-esteem. This helps me realize that I don't have to be afraid, that others will abandon me because I know I will always have my own back. My higher power will, and my spiritual family surrounds me with loving support. Too. Thanks for letting me share about this today, and thanks for your service, Heather C.
1: Thanks, Heather. I, I love that it, she starts out, I love the topic of abandonment. The enthusiasm here is amazing for something that is kind of scary, I guess. Yeah. You know? I hadn't thought about, she talks about survival skill of extreme people pleasing, and I hadn't thought about how that, for me, comes out of fear that you won't like me, you won't want to spend time with me, which is also a form of fear of being abandoned, I think, isn't it? Absolutely. And I can relate to the story about dancing. I have things that I like to do that my partner of over 40 years doesn't like to do. And for a long time, I thought I couldn't do them.
0: Sure. Mm -hmm. I could really relate to that as well. And I I felt like she was describing my mother (laughs) in that first paragraph. That was how we were. We had to walk on eggshells around her always, which is what taught us codependent behaviors that have come up
4: for me later in life. So I could definitely relate to that.
1: Now I'm going to. Play this voicemail we got from Danny.
4: Hey, Spencer. My name is Danny. And on the topic of fear of abandonment, I've I've had that pretty much my whole life, probably as a result of growing up with some inconsistent parenting from an alcoholic parent, a single mom. And I notice that all the time. Like I notice that whenever I'm in a relationship, I notice that fear comes up and manifests in different ways. Right now I happen to be going through a potential breakup with a partner who who I felt hasn't been there for me as much as I wanted that partner to be. Works a lot. His parenting schedule turned out that for the past year and a half or so that we've been in a relationship, we tend to see each other about one weekend every other week. I haven't liked that, but I've been putting up with it. And I finally came to the realization that actually it hurts a lot. It hurts me a lot more than I had been realizing that I didn't have the amount of connection with my partner that I wanted. And I had not been really speaking my truth about that because of fear of abandonment. If I tell him that I can't abide by this, then he will leave. And so I just made excuses for him and for me how the situation is going to change when XYZ or ABC and nothing changed. What's so interesting about this fear of abandonment is I realized this past week actually was that in not telling him what my truth was, that this is not something that I can accept in a relationship. I need to see you more often. I need to be in each other's presence more often by not being truthful about that. I was actually abandoning myself. And that self-abandonment is what causes so much pain. It's just so interesting that like, the things that we fear in others, in my experience, so often are things that I'm not providing to myself. <laughs> just comes up in countless different ways. And I actually did this past week speak up about it with him. And maybe the relationship isn't going to survive. Maybe it will end up breaking up. I don't know. But I also know that I'm going to be okay. And if I stay in a situation that is so fundamentally against what feels true to me, that I'm doing more damage to myself by abandoning myself than any damage that someone else leaving might cause. I just wanted to share that because I'm going through it right now. And it feels, it doesn't feel great to to, to think about the dissolution of a relationship uh, with someone I love, but also I feel okay. I, I know I'm going to be okay. And I know he's going to be okay, regardless of the outcome. It feels so much better to know that I'm being there. I'm there for me. Like I'm I'm taking care of me and I'm there for myself and I'm going to be true to myself. Thanks for uh, listening. And um, thanks for the topic.
1: What spoke to you and in, in what Danny had to share?
4: The part about
0: speaking her truth, I can definitely relate to that piece, especially in the context of a relationship and not wanting to speak about what I need to (laughs) be okay. And just going along, going with the flow and, and doing with whatever my partner wants to do over just admitting that the relationship isn't working even. That's a truth. And that was something that, I had to admit to when when I got to that point where I had to to put some boundaries in place. So it can definitely relate to how terrifying that can be to actually speak your truth. And I've learned that I had to actually make an amends to my inner child for abandoning her in that way. So now I really feel it's my responsibility to protect her and protect my needs and, and my identity and speaking my truth. Is the way I do that.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for breaking out of your isolation and, and speaking <laughs> your truth. Thank you. We had a couple more shares come in after we had recorded the episode of a voicemail from Kathy O. Oh.
3: Hi, Spencer. This is Kathy O oh from Southern California. And I'd like to share on the topic of fear of abandonment. It's actually what drove me to seek another program. I've been a longtime member of Al-Anon, and it really helped me and saved my life. But when I read the 14 characteristics of an adult child in the ACA literature, number 12 or trait 12 is what drove me to seek recovery in the ACA program. That trait 12 is We are dependent personalities who are terrified of abandonment and will do anything to hold on to a relationship in order not to experience painful abandonment feelings, which we receive from living with sick people who are never there emotionally for us. This is what I could identify with. I grew up with the disease of alcoholism, and I never understood how, if my parents provided for me, put a roof over my head, we had clothing and food. But I didn't understand how emotionally and spiritually I felt abandoned because those needs were not met. And until I came into ACA and read the literature, I didn't understand that I was subconsciously seeking out people that also left me abandoned in those areas too, including myself. I was abandoning myself emotionally and spiritually, because this is what I learned growing up. I am so grateful to have these two programs in my life. They fill different needs. But this topic particularly is what keeps me coming back to the rooms of ACA. Recovery is what they call the flip side of that laundry list trait. And the recovery is, or the promises, we grow in independence and are no longer terrified of abandonment. We have Interdependent relationships with healthy people, not dependent relationships with people who are emotionally unavailable. And this is what I learned in my recovery program of ACA, but it overlaps with Al Anon as well, because I learned that I have a higher power that is greater than myself that can see me through times where I do feel abandoned spiritually. And that I learned first and foremost in, in Al-Anon. I thank God for Al-Anon, and I thank Al-Anon for giving me a God. And then in ACA, I learn ways to interrupt that that feeling or compulsion of seeking other people that will abandon me in those ways or abandoning myself. So I have a better self-nurturing relationship with myself where I no longer abandon myself and try to fill my uh, spiritual and emotional needs with people who are not there for me. I can do that for myself and nurture myself and not be needy and in seek of filling that hole in my soul with things outside of myself. Thanks, Spencer, for all you do in the program, and I really enjoy your podcast. It's a vital part of my recovery.
1: Gina wrote, Hi, Spencer. I was looking at step four in the ACA yellow workbook. It has descriptions of feeling words, which includes feeling abandoned, quote, a sense of loss, being left, pushed out, forgotten, minimized, betrayed, feeling vulnerable, feeling physically small, a dot, lost at sea. That's on page 77 of that ACA yellow workbook. I have learned that abandonment can be physical or emotional. And in my experience, emotional abandonment has been confusing and damaging. I was emotionally damaged by my father when he minimized, criticized, shamed, and gaslit me. I was so used to that treatment as a child, I didn't see that as red flag behavior in my adult relationship, which eventually led to an abusive marriage. I understand now that my alanonic tendencies come from the fawn trauma response. Because I had fear of emotional abandonment, I tried to make him happy to avoid his criticism. I engaged in codependent behaviors like people pleasing or putting others first because that felt like the safest way to avoid any of his judgmental or shaming comments. This was all subconscious, of course. I wouldn't have said at the time I feared abandonment, especially since I thought I was strong for staying in the marriage, despite the unacceptable behavior. But I've learned how subtle this complex PTSD can be, where alcoholism and dysfunction is involved. When we know better, we do better, one day at a time. The ACA Step 4 Feelings exercise helped me identify when I felt emotionally abandoned with I feel statements like I feel blank when blank because blank. For instance, I feel emotionally abandoned when someone makes a joke at my expense because it activates my historical shame from when I was laughed at as a child. I'm able to identify and process the feeling, then right size it and put it into perspective with detachment and then let it go. Also, I heard on a recent podcast that someone asked for a series of episodes based on the laundry list traits, and I echo that request. If anyone has worked the traits and would be willing to do episodes on them, that would be great. I have only just started dipping my toe into that by attending ACA laundry list meetings. As someone that started in al I particularly resonate with the following ACA traits. ACA trait 6. We have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility and it is easier for us to be concerned with others rather than ourselves. This enables us not to look too closely at our own faults. ACA Trait 9 We confuse love and pity and tend to love people we can pity and rescue. ACA Trait 13 Alcoholism is a family disease, and we became para-alcoholics and took on the characteristics of that disease even though we did not pick up the drink. ACA Trait 14 Para-alcoholics are reactors rather than actors. Thank you for all of your service. The Recovery Show is such a resource library. Keep well and stay safe, Gina. Thanks, Gina, for that. And you've just added some ACA information to our library. How about that? And thank you, Gina and Kathy, for contributing to this episode. We will take a short break and then we'll continue with our lives in recovery where we talk about how recovery is working in our daily lives recently, I asked you to pick music and you did. Want to talk about the first one?
0: Sure. Our first musical collection, which you can listen to on the website at slash 364 is by Nico Case. And it's a song called I Wish I Was the Moon. For me, it really touches on, again, feeling my feelings and, and, and feeling grief in feeling abandonment and loneliness the lyrics God blessed me I'm a free man with no place free to go paralyzed and collared tight no pills for what I fear this is crazy I wish I was the moon tonight chimney falls as lovers blaze I thought that I was young now I've freezing hands and bloodless veins as numb as I've become I'm so tired I wish I was the moon tonight
1: In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? I'm going to talk about a couple of things. We took a little vacation last weekend. Really, our first vacation since COVID. The reason for the vacation was maybe not so happy because we were going up to be with my wife's cousin, as she scattered some of her husband's ashes, he wanted some of his ashes to be scattered in a bay off of Lake Superior where he used to fish. He loved the, the place. And we had a very nice ceremony standing on a bluff over this bay. And then we tried to scatter some ashes into the lake. Unfortunately, the wind was blowing off the lake, so it oh, no. really didn't work very well. I ended up with a face full, I'll say. Felt a little odd about that but she said, so Spencer, did you get some Fred on you? I was like, yes, I did. He's going <laughs> to be with me for a while, I think. So sense of humor really helps there. A sense of acceptance. Sure. And we figured eventually the rain would come and he would end up where he wanted to be. You know, when when you travel, things are never exactly what you want them to be. Got to practice a lot of acceptance, a lot of this is the way it is right now kind of thing. And that's so much easier now than it used to be. It, it just is. We also had some time, time in the woods, time spent looking at a waterfall and just letting the roar of the water, you know, that's a meditative experience, if you will. Yeah. And then as we were driving back to our hotel from our uh, excursions, we heard that the Mackinac Bridge, which connects the two parts of Michigan had been closed because of Well, at this point, it was maybe a bomb threat. Turns out it actually was a bomb threat. And we thought, how are we going to get home? That's the only connection between the two parts of Michigan. It's a bridge that's about five miles long. There's no ferry or anything. And I thought, what will happen will happen. I certainly can't change anything about the bridge. We did what we could, which is when we got back to the hotel, I checked to see if they would have a room available the next night if we decided we wanted to stay another night they had been full over the weekend but we were coming into monday and they would so that was good and i checked to see how long would it be if we drove around the other side of lake michigan which would have added over 400 miles to a trip that was under 400 miles to start with but we could have gotten home and then we let go of it we went out and and had dinner and some ice cream and found out that Hey, they had reopened the bridge after looking for a bomb and finding none. So it was fine. And I didn't have to get all stressed about it. I didn't have to catastrophize it. I'm never gonna get home. Oh my <laughs> god. You know, that's not happening. And it probably wasn't gonna happen, and in fact it didn't. So it was fine.
0: Recovery in motion.
1: Recovery in motion, absolutely. And then yesterday, as I wrote to you in the in the afternoon, we were actually planning to to record yesterday. I said, my wife reminded me that today's our anniversary and she wants to go out for dinner. Can we reschedule it? You were gracious enough to to say yes.
0: You can't or, miss that.
1: I mean, it's only 37 years, okay? Who's counting? But what's funny is that we had both forgotten.
0: Oh, okay. Well, it makes it a little better.
1: The first time in, you know, 37 years that both of us hadn't anticipated it coming. And I think it, it you know had partly to do with all this other stuff that was going on in our lives. We recovered. We went out to dinner with our child in town and sat outside to accommodate that person's anxiety about being in enclosed spaces with people during the time when COVID is still around. It's not gone. And it was a lovely night Mm -hmm. and it was a lovely dinner. So yeah, recovery in action, accepting what is, doing what we can, accepting What happens, I think, is a huge part of my life these days. How about you, Shannon? How are you doing?
0: We'll see. The last week, I live in Texas and my family, I'm originally from Michigan as well. As I mentioned, my mom passed away last year during COVID, not of COVID, but during COVID. And so we just had her funeral last week. And speaking of saying my truth, the funeral actually turned out much better than I had Hoped for. My mother was very sick, as I mentioned, and didn't have a lot of friends at the end. So there was almost the sense of like anxiety for her that oh, there's not going to be anybody there, and it's not going to be a this huge kind of celebration of her life. There wasn't a ton of people there, but the, the people who really mattered were, and it was actually a really beautiful experience. Happy to be a part of it, and stayed. The rest of the week here in Michigan with my family, then it was time to go home the next day on Sunday. And I just really felt my truth, even though I knew my kids wanted to go home. Not they don't love being with our family, but they wanted to go home and see their friends. My husband wanted to get back because he had obligations and things. I just felt like I was in a place where I wasn't ready to go back. I talked to my husband and changed my flight and stayed another week. So I've been spending the week with my sister and her beautiful new lake house on Sage Lake in Michigan and working from here all week long. And, and then I go back on, on Sunday. I'm glad I did it because we had some, some really great experiences together this week that I, I have been able to really be a part of everyone's lives up here in a long time because I've lived so far away. So i um, grateful for that.
1: And that is one of the unlooked-for positive things that I think came out of this whole pandemic and isolation is that we found that we can work from other places than maybe <laughs> sitting at a desk in an office in a cubicle.
0: Yes, very uh, true.
1: My my company has said, look, we know we can do this now. And so those of you who are not comfortable coming back to the office, we are yeah. not going to set a date. We're not going to make you come in. And it gives you that flexibility. One of my what? kids moved across the country because they realized I can do what I'm doing from anywhere and I'm going to go live somewhere that is a cheaper and b I I like better than where I was. So cool. Yeah. A topic that's upcoming, Eric suggested to me that we talk about in all our affairs, which I know I've done before, but it's a great topic. So we're doing it again. I've reached out for contributions but if you're just hearing this for the first time we welcome your thoughts your share come join our conversation tell us how you have used how you use your recovery principles in your life maybe recently leave us a voicemail or send us an email and shannon how can people do that
0: you can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795 call right now to seven three four. 707-8795. 707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send us the voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show.
1: You can also contribute on today's topic of fear of abandonment or our upcoming topic in all our affairs. Or if you have a topic you'd like to talk about, let us know. If you want advance notice so that you can contribute more Easily, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at show. If you put email in the subject line, it makes it easier for me to spot and make sure that I don't miss you because I have to put you on the mailing list by hand because I kept the list anonymous because it's an anonymous program, right? Our website is therecovery.show. We have all the information about the show there, which includes notes for each episode, including this one, which would be at therecovery.show slash 364 references and links to the books that we read from videos for the music or in the case of one of the selections today it's going to be a soundcloud link yeah so do check out the website we'll get listener feedback in a minute our mailbag as it were but you picked another songs shannon so why don't you tell us about that
0: this song is about losing someone to the disease of addiction and how it changes their personality and it just really stood out to me because of my most recent experience it's called poppy and it's by an artist named z avi but the lyrics go like this my baby used to repeat the news and now he talks about dragons on the walls he used to like german expressionism films now he drinks until he falls i was confused didn't know what to do so i called his mama had her come on over She got him off the ground, started slapping him around. And as she cried, she said, she said, she said, the poppy took my baby away from me. The poppy took my baby away from me. Yeah.
1: What did you have to say this week? Margot wrote, Hi there. I hope this email finds you well. I have to say I love your podcast and it's really made me rethink my recovery and the steps I have taken to help me process my own situation and navigate through life while being part of an emotionally dysfunctional family and a father struggling with addiction for now half of my life. I would be interested in hearing stories about how people that have someone struggling with addiction in their families have been able to build healthy relationships, especially romantic ones, but not only. And basically managed not to sabotage them. I'm 30 years old and I have now struggled for a while to find someone with whom to build a healthy relationship. I very often find myself being attracted to men that fear commitment or that need rescuing but are rarely showing up for me when I need them to be. I'd love nothing more than to break that vicious cycle and hopefully start building a future with someone. I'm very conscious that this vicious circle is a reflection of myself and that I am most probably take a part in sabotaging these relationships as well, not even realizing it nor understanding my responsibility in these situations. P.S. I am French and writing from London, where I have now been living for almost six years. Your podcast really helped me through lockdown this past year, and I promise to send a voice note next time I contact you. Thank you so much, Margot. Thank you for writing, Margot, and suggesting a topic of How to build healthy relationships when all you learned growing up was dysfunction? Something like that. I don't know. If that topic strikes you, why don't you drop me a line and maybe we can make it into an episode. Thanks. Kathy wrote it, and I did have some correspondence with Kathy that she was okay with me reading this letter into the podcast. So here we go. Hi, Spencer. I'm writing after having listened to the Sympathy, Empathy, and Compassion Show. I've been a long time listener, and this is my first time writing to you during the podcast. I heard a caller, Susan who mentioned having compassion for her alcoholic father at the end of her call. She mentioned her sister who didn't have a relationship with him. after her call, I heard comments from you and the co-host. What I heard was, "If people work a program, it makes it possible to have relationships with alcoholics. I was a bit surprised by the caller in the comments. you see. I am the sister. I've been sober for 34 years and in Alanine for over 10, and I have been fortunate to have access to mental health resources, including therapy, for many years. I have worked very hard to overcome abuse. I'm glad Brene Brown was mentioned at the start of the podcast and that people who have better boundaries have more compassion. Brene Brown also shares that shame is either the message, not good enough, or who do you think you are? Having been in meetings for years, I sometimes feel that the program can be used to shame those also seeking recovery and healing. I've done this myself. The message sometimes offered is that if I were working a better program, if I were healthier, if I had a stronger connection to my higher power, I would be good enough to have relationships with abusive alcoholics, and the failure to have a healthy relationship or any relationship is my failing. Isn't this the same broken message I showed up to my first El meeting with? quote, it's all my fault. What I have found on my journey in recovery is some relationships. The only choice that worked for me is to let go. Al-Anon offers that I don't have to accept unacceptable behavior from anyone. In the big book and the chapter working with others, it suggests that we work with people who genuinely want to get sober. If not, we don't waste our time. We move on to the next candidate. I apply this to people I allow in my life today. It has been helpful. I spent some time thinking about whether or not to write in and decided to be authentic and courageous and speak up. Maybe share a viewpoint that is new or offers insight for someone else. Today, I am good enough. I am worthy of love and belonging, even if I choose not to have a relationship with my father. Thank you for sharing your recovery, Kathy. And Kathy, thank you for writing and thank you for calling me to a little bit of account there. I totally agree with you that one of the things that We can get from recovery. I think probably one of the things that I have gotten from recovery is the understanding of myself and the clarity of vision, maybe to be able to decide whether it is healthy for me to have a relationship with certain people and what kind of relationship that's going to be, which I think is basically the same thing that you said, just in different words. So, thanks for writing. Faith writes, Hi Spencer, your show is truly a lifesaver. It's nice to have your podcast to throw me a link and float back upright. I am always glad when the show pops up and I hear just what I need. A little background, I'm definitely a child of alcoholism and other addictions in the family, plus mental illness. Along with that mental illness comes the irrational thinking and emotional and mental manipulation I'm the youngest of five, from Chicago, now living in Florida. I'm 61 years old. I grew up around so much dysfunction and alcoholism in the neighborhood. Who didn't? But it wasn't till my early 30s that I realized all of this. A nice lady at my church told me about Al-Anon. As I was expressing frustration and anxiety about my marriage, the first one, I'm on my second now. I never realized what a Pandora box one opens with attending meetings. And in my first marriage, I saw the drinking as well as self-centeredness and someone who was dishonest with business and money. Anyway, I have been the one who has the burden of taking care of my 63-year-old brother who is mentally unstable, schizophrenia, addictions, not much education, and unfortunately lived incarcerated for a good part of his life. So we live in circles of going from one ALF, I think that means assisted living facility, to another, he can't stay clean, loves smoking marijuana and drinking. I'm sure it's to distract him from the mental illness and the lack of confidence he has. I've also come to understand that her mother is part of the problem, even still at age 90. She engages him in bad behavior, but as long as it doesn't affect the way she wants to live. She's always asking me to take care of issues she can't, suffering from her own illness of Parkinson's, macular degeneration in both eyes. She lives in an assisted living facility. Thank goodness. My own depression, which I became aware of, in the past few years, really kicks in and makes my, me want to isolate, staying away from everything and everyone, being alone. I don't know why it happens. I have good daughters and a grandson now. I have a husband who loves me. I have a very busy and detailed job. Loneliness is a topic that comes to mind. Even in a world of family and friends and co-workers obsessing over one's own sanity and staying normal is such work and can be so exhausting. I listened to episode two hundred and twenty two, which, by the way, is titled Insanity and Unmanageability. Back to Faith's note here. I listened to episode two hundred and twenty two. Good insight. I'm not a heavy drinker. As a matter of fact, I felt I was previously and have not had a drink in two years. It gives me a headache and I have no taste for it anymore. Drinking is just not worth the outcome it has. It was really a way to drown out my reality. Being from Chicago there were bars everywhere. It was a social place to be so crazy. One does build a tolerance. I finally had enough, and when I had kids, I cut back. Now I know it is just a path to distraction and destruction. I like that. Distraction and destruction. Oh, and Faith says, that's a good topic. Distraction and destruction with denial. Brings on the depression. Four Ds. You ready for it, Eric? Anyway, back to Faith. I'm going on too much, but i love to start participating more in your podcast and hope I can lend my strength and hope and serenity I've gained through the program. Without it, I know I would not be here. The lady from the church I know is gone, now in heaven. She was a super nice person, didn't know me at all, but spoke to me with an open heart and ear. I started my first Al-Anon in the early 90s. Help kept me in my first marriage for at least 10 years. After that, I stopped. But when I met my second love of my life, I had an aha moment and turned back around and found meetings again. My second spouse is a child of alcoholism. The only way I would date him and continue on a path together was to have him involved in recovery. He too has addictions he has been surrounded by, and both parents are heavy drinkers. That's another podcast combining families with similar if not the same diseases. It's so important to try and not let our kids take on these traits, but to remember we are not in control and life has to work out and move to their own beat. I love reading the original Odette in the morning before work, like the Old Testament in the Bible. I read Courage to Change at Night. On page 278, Encourage to Change, October 4th. Feeling alone, we remember why we are all here. We need never feel alone. As a great reading and closing, which, in part, says, we are all as unique as our fingerprints, but as our fingers join in the closing prayer, each of us is part of a circle of hope that is greater than any of our individual differences. And the quote is from the Bible, For the body is one and has many members. But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. It's good to know my higher power has my back. I hope he continues to have yours as well. Thanks, Spencer, for letting me share. I really needed this and wish I only had done this sooner. It's never too late. God bless, peace, and... Hand emoji. Looks like a victory sign emoji. Faith E. And she ends with, let it begin with me. Thanks, Faith, for all of that. Topic ideas, crazy topic ideas, great topic ideas. Good reading, lots of experience. Wow. Thank you for writing. Ben writes, Hi, Spencer. I know your episode on how Alanon can help after a divorce is a couple of months old now, but I'm well behind on my podcast since my office hasn't reopened yet, and so I don't have a commute. As someone who divorced while in program, the episode really resonated with me. There is one kind of scary element of ending a marriage with an alcoholic qualifier that I experienced, but you and Pat didn't really go into. Dating again. For me, it was an eye-opening experience. I thought I had recovered a lot after a few years of program, yet somehow, the first woman I dated after my divorce had the exact same profession as my ex-wife and, I eventually realized, also had a drinking problem. What were the odds? Three question marks. In hindsight, probably about 100%. The problem was, even though I was recognizing my emotions and self-worth, establishing boundaries and using many other tools Alanon teaches us, I hadn't yet learned to question my instincts on who I found attractive. And so I was drawn to women just like my ex. Luckily, I recognized the problem and broke up with this woman after a few months. That's a good example of progress, not perfection, I suppose. Changing who I am attracted to isn't easy, but in the spirit of changing my thinking through action and being comfortable with discomfort, I'm now dating someone who wasn't as attractive to me right off the bat because she is, well, a little more boring. But of course, boring also means no mood swings, capable of focusing on my emotions and needs sometimes, and sober 99 plus percent of the time. In other words, it's a much, much healthier relationship. Maybe the first healthy romantic relationship of my life. I wanted to share my experience because anyone in al who gets divorced then starts dating again, Will probably have to reassess who they find attractive and take some risks dating people who don't feel like such a natural fit in order to avoid ending up with someone they'll ultimately have to add to their list of qualifiers. Best, Ben. So true, Ben. So true. I've heard a lot of people say, I just have a broken picker when it comes to picking romantic partners. Ellen wrote, Hi. To begin with, I love your show. I listen to it pretty much every night before sleep and every day as I walk. I've only been in LNN for five months, but I've been able to get to some deep and often painful and shameful places as a result of attending meetings and now doing the fourth step. Places that none of the therapy I've had ever really touched. I'm finding insights and revelations about myself tumbling in so fast that my hands are sore from typing about them. Smiley face. I am lucky in that I found a wonderful sponsor with decades of recovery and similar experiences to mine, spouse's death, depression, etc., which also helps enormously. But your show, with its close and personal sharing, and with the time and space for that, and the conversing between you and guests, adds something more to my understanding of myself and others, and gives me a very comforting sense of additional support. So, I've shared in the virtual fellowship on Zoom, after a couple meetings about your show, because I find it, such a wonderful addition to what I get from meetings in literature. Twice now I've been, well, chastised is a bit of a strong word, but something like that, because the show is not al approved. In one meeting, someone said they thought it wasn't even only about Al-Anon stuff, which I answered actually because it was during the virtual fellowship afterwards, that as far as I could tell, it's absolutely about Al-Anon. I've since learned that the best thing for me to do is to reach out to a newcomer, ha, which I still am, privately, if that person is asking about where else they can get Ellen on help and information. And just if they're interested, inform them about the podcast. As of course, I've not listened to all the episodes yet. I'm wondering if there's an episode that makes some reference to this issue. Thank you for taking the time to read this and for taking the time and energy to do this podcast. I wrote back to Ellen. I said, thank you for writing and thank you for continuing to recommend the podcast to others. I don't advertise, so word of mouth is the best way to get more people listening. It is true that my podcast is not Al-Anon. It is a place where people in recovery, mostly through Al-Anon, talk about their recovery experiences and understanding. As such, it falls into the same category as non-conference-approved literature, such as Codependent No More and other books that many of us have used in our personal recovery. And as such, I suggest not mentioning it by name or recommending it during a meeting. I might say something like, I found some recovery podcasts that have really helped me. That leaves it open for someone to approach you before or after the meeting to ask, what podcasts? I'd like to listen to some too. It's also the case that we sometimes talk about non alanine topics on the podcast. I've had guests talking about Adult Children of Alcoholics, Codependents Anonymous, and S. Anon, just to name a few. The podcast is not Al-Anon, but it is from an al perspective, at least most of the time. I hope I've clarified things for you a little bit. And I have to say, chastised during the conversation after the meeting, mm, somebody's being a little controlling, maybe. And there I am sitting in judgment and talking about people that I know nothing about. So it's time for me to shut up. Yeah. Ellen also asks, have we done an episode on this? I think not specifically. I, I know it's come up a, a few times. Yeah, probably mostly in the listener feedback section. I think that tradition four. We might have talked about it in the Tradition 4 episode. Not sure. It's been a while. Karen writes, Hi, Spencer. I loved The Recovery Show episode 363, Finding Compassion for the Alcoholic. I really resonated with the share which mentioned Overeaters Anonymous. I actually found my way to Al-Anon through OA. Being a member of OA led me to the understanding, along with seeing a skilled therapist, that I grew up in an alcoholic home, had a history of alcoholism and untreated Al-Anons on both sides of my family and was in a relationship with an alcoholic, and over time, Al-Anon became my primary 12-step community. Coming into Al-Anon with some understanding of my own addiction issues and unhealthy relationship with food, and my own precious body, helped me find some compassion for the alcoholic. This did not mean I had to stay in a relationship with the alcoholic, but it did help me to have clarity, create appropriate boundaries, and break codependent habits. I love that in the Al-Anon meetings I attend, the groups only talk Al-Anon and do not identify other healing communities of which they are members. And I also love how the recovery show welcomes shares and discussions that mention other 12-step groups, therapy, other healing tools, including music. And on that note, pun intended, I'd like to suggest a song for the playlist, Children Say by Level 42. The lyrics in the song that really speak to my journey in recovery are When I overhear my parents' conversations, I'm struck by the things they say. It seems they traded the years for mere complications, whoever thought it could end this way. They close the door, but they can't lock it because something of their childhood remains. And they felt it before when the men in their pocket counted the cost of their material gains. Children say, come what may, be strong for the friends you've known. But one fine day, far away, can we remember the love we used to own? Thank you and Eric for your service. Yours in recovery, Karen from New York. Thanks for writing, Karen. Thanks for the song. Hope I can find an episode to use that in soon. But I may drop it into the Spotify playlist for this episode just because. Which, by the way, you can find a link to the playlist at therecovery.show slash 363. Candy wrote, Dear Spencer, Thank you for all your service to the recovery world. It is greatly appreciated. I found you through word of mouth shortly before the pandemic, and I listen almost daily in addition to meetings. Thank you. I would appreciate some information regarding AWOL groups. You have mentioned several times that you are in one, that it is small and has been going on for a long time. How did you decide the size? Is it considered a closed group? Are you following a certain book? Any info you have would be greatly appreciated. Thanks and have a good day. I wrote back to Candy. I said that in my experience, a good size was maybe four to eight people. I think... You have more than eight people. It's hard to have a conversation if that's what you want to do, if that's not what you want to do. Okay. And it takes a long time to get around all the sharing. Too small. I like having multiple viewpoints. I like it not just being like me and another person. The group that I was in most recently started out with five people. After a couple of years, we reduced it to four. Someone moved and somewhere along in there, we decided we wouldn't meet if we couldn't have at least three of us there. So that was just our decision in that group. Another group that I was in, we started with eight people. And at some point, one person said, I need to drop out. And we ended with seven. Another group started about the same size, ended up with four. It was a good group. But consider the conversation aspect of it. You want to fit everybody around a table so everybody can hear what everybody else has to say. That's hard with more than eight people for sure how can you form a group? A number of approaches. Uh, one is to talk to people before or after a meeting that maybe you think you'd like to be in a group with, or maybe they've indicated that they're interested in being in a group. You can announce it in a meeting that, that you're forming a group and interested people should talk to you. And there's probably other ways to put it together as well. Were the groups that I was in closed? And I can only speak to that. Yes, they were once they formed. And I think there's at least two factors that lead into that. One is That with a closed group, with an expectation that everybody, as much as possible that they can, shows up for every meeting, you have a commitment to the group. If the group has people coming in and out, I feel like I don't feel as much of a commitment. And I also maybe start getting a little resentful at the people who are not being committed to the group, something like that. The second factor for having a closed group is developing trust. Particularly if you're working the steps together, by the time you get to those steps where you might be digging in a little deep and you might be talking about some very personal stuff, you want to have built trust through having met together and gone through the journey together for for that period of time. I find that really helped, especially when I was new in the program. Tammy wrote, Hi, Spencer. I just wanted to pass along how beautiful Susie's songs were in her voicemail message you shared in episode 360. The first song resonated so strongly as I, too, have a daughter currently in active alcoholism. She writes, whatever your problems, there are those among us who have them, too. Thank you for all you do to support the al community. Your podcast has helped me in so many ways. Tammy. Tammy, I'm glad you enjoyed them. I did, too. Susie, if you're listening, Tammy really liked your song. An anonymous listener wrote, Dear Spencer, I wanted to write to you for years. Wait, not true. I've started to write to you a bunch of times over the last four years or so since I found your podcast, but I've never pulled the trigger until now. For the last nine years or so, I've been living with active alcoholism. Wait, who am I kidding? It's been way longer than that. I was just in deep denial. We've had peaks and valleys and times when I really seriously considered leaving Stay or go, heard it a million times. Seriously, some episodes I could recite to you. I longed for the compassion you ultimately expressed for your loved ones drinking. Me? I've been all about middle finger detachment, and I can do it better than the best of them. Lately, I was in a very dark place, mentally and physically. I met my now sponsor four years ago at a meeting. We sat beside each other, and when the meeting ended, some of the participants were going to lunch. She asked me if I was going, and I said I was scared. She grabbed my arm and she said, She would be my courage. I knew in that magical moment that I really did have a higher power. I just didn't realize how significant that moment would be. I've kept in touch over the years, a text here or there. Questions like, did you listen to the latest episode? Stuff like that. She dove into the fellowship. I kept thinking I knew better and didn't go all in. Continued to dabble, always having it close, but just remaining a bit of an outsider. Flash forward until now. I'm in a new low. I'm listening to your podcast. And who is a guest host? My courage, Kathy. A guest freaking host. It's like a celebrity saying, what are the odds? In this miracle of recovery miracles, of course it worked out that way. Because we get our messages in the way that we do in order to actually hear them. Okay, higher power, I'm listening. I heard her speak of the domestic abuse she lived through. I knew her story, but something was different in her voice. Then it hit me like a ton of bricks. If you want what we have, you have to be willing to do what we did. So now I'm all in, as all in as a chicken like me can be. I still have a lot of fear to work through. Baby steps, progress, not perfection, and all that. My anger has been replaced with some compassion. I'm doing my best to stay in my hula hoop, not do for him what he can do for himself. And that means getting out of his way and let him hit his bottom, whatever that looks like. Am I scared? Actually, no, not really. Some of that courage is slowly rubbing off on me. Do I believe he will find recovery? I'm not sure. But I do know that whatever happens, I will be okay. And that is the gift, because the only one that I actually have any type of control over is me. I was pissed off about something, and I started to give him a what-for. Then I stopped myself, recognizing old behavior, and quickly apologized. He was knee-deep in booze, so I really knew better, but that old behavior can creep back up if you aren't careful. I was so proud of myself for actually showing that compassion. I thought about the car and him being a passenger. What an amazing visual, by the way. I can't stop thinking about that. He turned to me and the said, The doctor told me I should go to rehab. I nearly fell over. I was so mad five minutes ago and now all I could think about, wow, I should have got out of the way a long time ago. Do I have a ways to go? I do. But my wise sponsor said with my latest wind that I need to share. So I am doing that. I'm working on finding my voice. Thank you is too small a token to express the difference you've been in my life. Yet it is all I have. Spencer, you are a gift to the recovery community. Thank you for your service. Thank you for being a friend to me when you never even knew I was listening. Sincerely, Anonymous Ariel because of the sea witch stealing my voice lol thank you ariel or anonymous for writing and wow what a wonderful god wink you got there we have a voicemail from sally
2: hi it's sally from atlanta i wanted to thank you and and all your helpers for all that you
0: do you are a light and a dark tunnel but i wanted to make a suggestion for a show and i've listened to so many of those podcasts, but I, I don't think it's exclusively covered, but I might be wrong, but I know it's sprinkled in, but the subject that I had in mind, raising young children or children with an active alcoholic, that's where I am now. But that to me is the hardest part, of course, that's my hardest part
4: that I go through. But again, down I just wanted to say thank you again. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you, Sally. I think that we at least touched on this idea of raising young children with an active alcoholic Uh, in the episode about co-parenting with an alcoholic. That's number 342. But it certainly could merit a full episode of its own. I mean, I have some experience because my kids were 15 when their mother found sobriety. I can probably dig back and think about that. And, uh, if somebody else wanted to join me in that journey, I would love to. Barkley also left us a voicemail. Hi, my name is Barkley
2: and I have been voraciously consuming your podcast and it's been saving my life. I'm a double winner. My mom soul was We relapsed. I should say now I'm a double winner. Since you I
4: knew to come
2: to LMA. I'm not able right now to get to a lot of meetings Since your podcast is to a lifeline. I've heard you share across the podcast I'll share speak, speaking on your talk several times. And the moment where you share about whether or wanted you to leave your wife, and seeing you laying there and hearing the voice, it just gives me so much hope. And that's just what I need right now. So I just call to express my very, very deep gratitude that you did and that you carry such a beautiful message, but it's saving my life today. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Barkley. Thank you. You know, we are here for you and all the others. Shannon, you have picked for your third selection, not exactly a song. Why don't you tell us about it?
0: So as I mentioned earlier, meditation is something that's been really uh, a helpful tool in, in, in my recovery. And there is this beautiful piece of work by an artist named Sarah Blondin that I came across a few weeks ago that was really helpful for me. And I thought, wow, that kind of really ties into fear and, and, and overcoming that fear of abandonment. The uh, meditation is called Your Seed of Softness, and again, it's by uh, Sarah Blondin. And I'll just read some excerpts from the actual recording. The voice from inside the girl said, Have you ever wondered if this fear haunting you serves more of a purpose than to be something you wish away? Have you ever asked this forest living in the spaces around your heart from where it came and what it wishes so desperately for you to hear? The girl stopped for a moment in quiet reflection. Bewildered that she had never considered this before, she decided to put down her resistance and breathe deeply into the tight fist clenched around her chest. She, for the first time ever in her life, let her fear speak. To her amazement, it answered, I wish to tell you, you are alive. I wish to remind you of the life inside you, longing to be lived more fully. I hold you so tightly because I am a constant reminder that there is good work for you to do. The more you lose yourself in doing all you do to bring your soul life in sweet pools of light, the more I shall release my grasp. Know that me being here is my way of loving you into remembrance of your heart's desire. The more you work at finding, spreading, teaching love
4: the less I will need to hold you so tight.
1: Thank you for that. And again, there will be a link to the full recording on the website at therecovery.show. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow you one day at a time.